Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. We are continuing in our look at Revelation. Welcome. We're in session 27. And we're talking about a couple of, of strange subjects. One of the ones that we're going to touch, we are going to continue on in uh, chapter 15 of the book, which is also the shortest book, uh, the, excuse me, the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. Uh, but before we get into that, we're also going to talk a little bit about the Antichrist figure from the book of Genesis. I don't know if that you are aware that there was a, a there, there are two types that are set up for us in the book of Genesis. The first is a type of Christ in the order of Melchizedek, prophet, priest, and king of the Most High God. But there's another guy that we're going to take a look at who uh, is the type of the Antichrist, a, a world leader, a world ruler, in fact, of his day. But before we do any of that, we always want to begin our, our look into God's Word with a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we come before your throne of grace that you would impart upon us the wisdom needed to grasp the truths of your Word so that as we consider these mysteries, Lord, that you would open them to our eyes, that you would allow them to dwell within our hearts, including the certain knowledge that uh, among all the challenges that may befall us in this world, Lord, that you've already planned the ultimate victory. And we, we long for the day when our faith will be made sight. We long for the day when we see truly that your kingdom uh, comes and that your will is done here on earth just as it is by your angels and your saints in heaven. So be with us now. Open our hearts, hands, and minds to your word and bless us to the work that is before us as we commit this time in ourselves into your hands without any reservation. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. So again, uh, Revelation is a book filled with sevens. We have seven trumpets. We have seven seals. We have seven bowls or vials of wrath. There are even seven thunders that the Holy Spirit tells the Apostle John, don't write this down. Uh, which I, I'm still wondering why he even included that. Why not just leave the whole thing out instead of making us speculate about it for 2,000 years? But anyway, I, I actually defy anybody to come up with an exhaustive list of sevens that cover this book. But along with the outline of write that the things which are, the things that you see, the things that have been, the things that are, the things that shall be after these things, Along with that outline of the book, you can also um, judge the latter half of Revelation, the, the hard prophecy of Revelation, if you will, by these nesting sevens. Now, what do I mean by that? Every time that a list of seven judgments comes up in the book of Revelation, it's always a pattern of six plus one. There are six somethings, then there's a pause then there's a seventh something that branches out into another group of sevens. So you have six seals, 
then there is a pause after seal number six. And then when the seventh seal is opened, you see seven angels with seven trumpets come out. And the same thing happens. There are six trumpeteers that blast their trumpets. And then there's a pause that we've just been going through. And then when the seventh trumpeter sounds forth his trumpet, then come this passage that we're about ready to get into where we see the seven bowls, or in some of your trans translations, seven vials of the wrath of God. And I've been using this graphic to kind of depict how that happens. So right now we are getting ready. Next session, when we cover chapter 16 of the book, we'll be talking about the, the effects of the first six vials of wrath. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get into it or not, but we'll also cover, after vial number six, we'll cover the Battle of Armageddon, which is symbolized by the red star there on your screen. So there's a couple of things that I'd like to go over from our previous sessions, mostly because I keep getting questions about this, not from our YouTube channel. So I would ask, if you're watching us from home, please mention comments down below. And it does two things for us. Number one, it gives me a written record of the questions that you want answered in the next unit. But that also helps to generate, um, I hate to use this phrase, but hype for our YouTube channel. Uh, it, it helps other people looking for things that have to do with the Bible, the Baptist heritage, or the book of Revelation specifically, to get these videos popping up in their feed. So please help us to get the Word of God out by liking, subscribing, and commenting. Even if you, if, even if you just want to say, I really enjoyed the session, which I hope you do, jot it down in the comments section below this video. But going on, concerning what we were talking about in the previous sessions, uh, chapter 14 is an oddball chapter. It's odd because even though it's included in the visions or the signs or the wonders of Revelation, the, the prophetic images, it, it's the first chapter to really use literal names, places, and so on. Uh, so it uses the, the Lamb, who is, of course, Christ. It uses the 144,000 that we've heard of beforehand. It uses uh, actual angels. It uses the city's name, the proper name of Babylon. Whereas in the earlier chapters, after John eats the little scroll, he gets these images that are very generic in terms. You see a woman. You see the woman giving birth to a man-child. They're not named specifically. They're almost shrouded in mystery that you have to know the rest of the Bible before you understand. But starting in chapter 14, we get literal people, characters that we've seen before. And, and specific proper names. That's what makes the, these next couple of chapters so interesting because they seem to be kind of this, uh, this strange combination of metaphor and literal. Uh, so how in the world do you, do you figure that out? In other words, what I've, I've kind of glibly said, uh, how do we overcomplicate it this time? Is everything symbolic? I would argue not necessarily because we do have proper names in this passage. So is everything parabolic? I tend to side with that interpretation. 
Uh, Jesus himself said that in, in Matthew chapter 13, when the, when the disciples were asking him, when do you, why do you teach in parables? And one would think that we, well, we'd call parables a, a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But Jesus actually says this, this isn't to help someone understand, it's to do quite the opposite. It's to hide things from those who are not in possession of the things of God. So that those who are, those who are true disciples, those who have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, they're the ones the parables are written for because through the Holy Spirit, they're the ones that are going to be able to understand it. So truths are disguised through parabolic language. And that's kind of where I tend to see what we're reading here today. Is everything literal? I certainly hope not because that creates problems as well. So the question that we ultimately need to ask ourselves about this passage and the passage that will come after it, chapters 14, 15, and 16, what are the prophetic truths in the symbols that we know are symbols, and how do they relate to the people who are actually named? Let me say that one more time because it's not on your screen. How do the prophetic symbols... What do the prophetic symbols actually mean? And how do they relate to the named people and places, in the case of Babylon, that are mentioned in the passages? So let's take a look at uh, the symbolic imagery that we've seen here. The 144,000 who are known to be a, a remnant out of Israel, out of tribulation Israel, they are considered as virgins not who have never known women. Now, if you were to literally interpret that, a literal interpretation uh, would basically fly in the face of anyone who is a female coming out of the tribulation from Israel. So I tend not to think that this is a literal phrase as it's mentioned. What I'm, I'm more inclined to think of is that, yes, these are 144,000 people who are of the remnant of Israel. But when the Bible says that they are virgins, I don't think that they are in the biological sense. I believe, and this is just my interpretation, I'll leave you to make up your minds as you will, that these are both men and women taken from the 12 tribes of Israel who are found to be righteous before God because they did not succumb to the temptation of religious immorality, of denying God and basically committing spiritual fornication with the dragon or the beast who, the dragon, who is pointing to the dragon. Are you with me so far? So these are Israelites that maintained a worship to the living God and refused to take the mark of the beast and were persecuted for it. There is also this image of the harvest of wrath from the earth. Now, does that mean that Jesus actually came down, plucked a bunch of grapes, squeezed them or had them trampled on by angels, and wrath actually gushed forth? I don't think so. I think that this is symbolic of judgment that, 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 uh, that Jesus was committing an act of judgment upon the oppressors of Israel actually in the nation within the boundaries of Israel. And of course, I touched on that previously, the wine of wrath flowing over the land. So here are the truths that I think that we can get from the previous chapter. 
Number one is that Jesus returns to Mount Zion with the remnant of Israel in tow. That there was a reconciliation between the remnant of Israel and Christ by them identifying Him as Christ. This we can see because they accept the seal of the living God who has Christ's name of it. They are given palm branches just like the saints of old were given on Palm Sunday where they herald in the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I think that we can interpret that God visits justice upon Israel's persecutors when, he, when they say that the wrath of God is poured out, is harvested, uh, with an exact measurement of the, the length and breadth of the land. And I think that God's wrath is then placed upon or is, is um, used in judgment of those found to be unfaithful, those who had committed spiritual immorality by denying the worship of the one true God. Now, there's also the question of Babylon and why on earth did I make such a big deal of it from the last session? And I'm not, I'm not going to exhaustively go over it. I'm just going to mention it in brief because Babylon has a significance in the rest of the book of Revelation that we need to be aware of. First of all, there is a symbolic significance when you hear that name, Babylon. Babylon was the place of the first organized rebellion against God. It's where uh, those that followed after Nimrod actually tried to build a tower into heaven to try to overthrow God in their own eyes. Basically, to invade the throne room of grace. It was a global empire because, only, because at that point in time, the only human beings that were there filled up that city. They hadn't dispersed throughout the rest of the world like they were commanded to. So it was a global empire because it was the entire human population and it was centered on one ruler. And we're going to get back to that in just a second. It was a military force that was set against the people of God on multiple occasions. Most significantly, when we see the fall of Judea in 2 Kings 24 and 25. It was also the birthplace and the point of spreading of paganism. And we see them, it actually called out the mother of harlots. That's what that means. Basically, that paganism starts here. This is where the first antithetical worship of, of anyone against God happens. This is where Artemis slash Diana slash Cimarronis, that's where that pantheon gets its start. Basically, every pantheon from Egypt to Greece to Rome had its origins here. All of paganism has its basis in the worship, the Mesopotamian worship of Babel, Babylon. Now, the question of what I went over in last session, I'll go over that in brief just to end the confusion because I think I tried to touch on too many bases all at the same time. First, for Roman Catholics, they claim that Babylon is a code word for Rome itself to justify Peter as being the first pope. Thus, everyone after them gets that kind of, of um, oh, what is the phrase that they use? Um, apostolic succession. Whoever is deemed to be the bishop of Rome sits in the seat of St. Peter. Now, after Rome converted en masse to Christianity, 
they had a hard, t- a hard time selling the book of Revelation because if Babylon means Rome, that means that God is going to come down hard upon Rome. And it's hard to preach the downfall of the people that are signing your paychecks. So this is where amillennialism gets its origins. And they're saying that it's either all symbolic or that it refers to Rome before its conversion to Christianity. Neither of which really makes sense when you pull out the the prophetic part of the book of Revelation. Uh, Anti-Catholic Protestants not those who are non-Catholic, but those who are vehemently opposed to Catholicism, often actually take and agree with the assertion that Babylon is a code word for Rome, basically to justify and to vilify the Roman Catholic Church. Basically that, that uh, Babylon, the great Satan, whatever you want to call it, is the Roman Catholic Church which I don't believe is true either, and I'll, uh, that's what I actually went over in the last session. So the resulting distractions, I believe, from the book are, number one, we're blinded to the possibility that Babylon actually resurges. That when we say Babylon, we may very well actually mean Babylon. Because if you'll notice, whenever... John is really good about using like or as statements. When he says something is like, uh, like the the uh, the the flying uh, demonic creatures from the pit, they had breast, they had chests that looked like they had breastplates. Uh, they seem to have hair like a woman's and stuff like that. He he's very good about making sure that you understand when he's using metaphorical language, but there's no like or as surrounding any mention of the Book of Revelation. Uh, number one, and, and to, and number two, excuse me, going on with Peter, the justification for the Roman Catholics in saying that the book of Second Peter is attributed to, is to him being in Rome instead of actually being in Babylon uh, is that he was afraid that if he actually used the phrase, I'm in Rome at this point in time, that the centurions would come knocking on his door and put him in chains. What that can be interpreted as from our point of view as Protestants is that Peter had a lapse of faith in God's providence. That he believed that God wouldn't justify him. Therefore, he had to basically lie or put a falsehood into Scripture, which I, I cannot resolve. Um, I do not believe, one, I, Peter, I don't believe at this state, after he's being indwelled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that he would, one, use a mistruth out of fear, or two, that the Holy Spirit would allow a lie to make it into the Word of God. I cannot believe that. Uh, So when Revelation says Babylon, I have a tendency to believe that it means what it says. Anyway, another reason that I tend to side with a literal interpretation here is that while Babylon has been conquered on multiple occasions, it has never been completely destroyed. The closest that it came to uh, was being attacked and conquered by the Assyrian Empire in roughly about 609 BC, but the sections of the city that had been torn down or badly damaged, the Assyrians rebuilt when they turned it into their capital. 
So Babylon has never actually, by definition, been destroyed. This is significant because multiple places in Scripture, the ultimate and complete destruction of Babylon is mentioned in prophecy. We'll get to that in just a second. It presently stands abandoned. It is near Hila in Iraq, I believe that's how it's pronounced, roughly about 20 miles south of Baghdad. We know that uh, it was abandoned and basically scavenged for building parts. When Baghdad and Barza were originally constructed, much of the mud brick that was used uh, in their initial creations came from the old Babylonian site. And more to the point for us in today's time, UNESCO actually declared it a World Heritage Site back in 2019. So what does this have to do with the price of eggs in Taiwan? Uh, Babylon is on the red arrow. Jerusalem's in the green arrow, roughly about 400 miles of distance between them. The Fertile Crescent, the, the Babylonian Empire uh, under Hammurabi, its first incarnation is what you see there in the green Nebuchadnezzar in his conquests, that's what you see added to that in the purple. So Babylon is located right in the middle. It's called Mesopotamia between two rivers. It's right between uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris sitting on the banks of the Euphrates. Now, this is a view of the Euphrates River at the borders of what used to be the city of Babylon as seen by the Hussein Palace, and yes, that Hussein, located in Hilal, Iraq. This is more interesting. The palace in question is over there to my to, well to your left, and the the spaces, the craters that you see there in the middle are places of where the the site of the old city is actually being excavated to this day. More than that, it's being restored. Isn't that interesting? So the old city of man that stands opposed to Jerusalem, meaning the city of God, is seeing a resurgence of activity. The prophecies of the Old Testament regarding Babylon include from Isaiah that it would be judged as Sodom and Gomorrah, which last time I checked, there isn't a new city of Sodom and Gomorrah somewhere. That it would be completely destroyed and left desolate. That God, and God also, excuse me, the prophet also uses the phrase, is fallen, is fallen, just as we saw in the previous chapter. Here, I forgot to mention that last, uh, last study in Isaiah chapter 21, and that its gods would be shattered. That the armies of God would empty it in Jeremiah chapter 50. That it would be destroyed and rendered silent in Jeremiah 51 and in Jeremiah 55. That it would be conquered by Christ in Micah chapter 5. Now, Micah chapter 5 is the, is the passage that we use in Christmas uh, where the prophet is writing that uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, I think that's how you pronounce it, 
while you are least among the daughters of Judah, nevertheless, one will come from you, and so on. You know that passage. Well, in Micah 5, it also talks about the Christ figure ultimately destroying the city of the Assyrians, meaning Babylon. And Assyria will again take up arms against Jerusalem. That hasn't happened since Rome destroyed Jerusalem, which ties in with this speculation that the Antichrist may himself be an Assyrian or of Assyrian descent. Um, can I build a doctrine on it? I don't think so. It's rather shaky ground, but that's something, it's conjecture I just want you to be aware of. Now let's talk about Babylon's first real ruler. And he's found in Scripture in Genesis chapter 10. And it's just an in-passing type of passage. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. Now, um, in the sight of, I want you to put a pin in that phrase. We're going to come back to it in a second. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erk, Akkad, Kalnich, in the land of Shinar. So just by quick word study, the Greek word Nimrod actually comes from a foreign origin, but it, it literally translates, according to the outline of biblical usage, the, the name translates into rebellion, a fitting title for the person who was a king of Babylon. The, uh, the term in Hebrew for before the Lord, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that phrase, the actual term literally translates to in the face of the Lord, as in he positioned himself in the face of the Lord. Now we, we take a glancing look at that as uh, just reading through the Bible and we, we think to ourselves, Okay, God saw him and he was apparently good with hunting down deer and such. That's not what the Hebrew actually suggests. Josephus, in his books, The Antiquity of the Jews, actually writes this for us as a commentary on this figure. Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that, it, that his own excellency was the source of it. In other words, the the descendants of Moses, uh, excuse me, the descendants of Noah, just as Noah knew about God, his descendants knew about God to a point in history, and at that point in history, things changed. At that point in history, they stopped the worship of God, and that was reduced down to a remnant from which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would eventually emerge. So what we see here from Josephus is the beginning of that period where the knowledge and the worship of God exited the human race en masse. Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that it was his own excellency which was the source of it. And he soon changed things into a tyranny, thinking that there was no other way to wean men from the fear of God than by making them to rely upon his power. One of the sources of rabbinical uh, teachings, the Jerusalem Tagrum, uh, it's, it's not authoritative in the same way that Scripture is. It's more of a commentary on Scripture. Uh, 
it mentions of Nimrod that he was, a, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. So when we're talking about hunter, we're not talking about he went under deer and turkey. We're talking about he went after, he pursued the faithful who still worship God. And he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. There it is said, and this is its explanation for that quote from the Bible, as Nimrod is the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness in the face of the Lord. So this is the way that, that the rabbis understand the figure of Nimrod. So what we can glean from that is that he establishes a rule of creation versus the creator, trying to set himself up as the object to be worshipped, similar to Caesar worship, where he tried to tie the power of the state with the power of the religion. In fact, the word culture, I don't know if I've ever told you about this or not, the reason that the word culture sounds so much like the word cult it has those shared letters in it is because the foundational meaning behind the word culture is the study of not only someone's everyday life, but the impact of their collective religious understanding. You can't have a culture absent religion. We've tried, but here we see it first come to pass where the people in temporal authority, the people in political power try to make their power secure by bending religion to their will as well. And they do that by setting, in the case of King Nimrod, the first here, setting himself up as ruler, also as an object of worship. The same way that we're going to see Nimrod the second, the next coming world leader, who has an idol cast in his image, and setting that idol up in the Holy of Holies, it's the same thing repeating. So when I say that the, sec the new coming world leader, the Antichrist, is a figure after the order of Nimrod, it's because the same thing is happening again. History repeats. Or it rhymes, depending upon who you ask. He also develops a mythology around himself including this supposed resurrection that he endures. Anyway, but we also see that he was an oppressor of the faithful and that he was guilty of a form of religious genocide. The same way that we can see the sea beast doing the same thing later on as described in the previous chapters of Revelation. All right, so we're in chapter 15 for today's study. Heavy in emphasis is a song of praise that is yielded by that faithful remnant, the 144,000 after their conquest at Mount Zion. Starting with verse 1. I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. He identifies it as a sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. I want you to underline that that these are to be the last plagues, globally speaking, on a fallen creation. For with them, God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. 
and those who had won the victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. Now, again, when we're talking about the word sign here, John is basically linking it, or rather the Holy Spirit through the pen of John is linking it with the small scroll visions that we've seen through the ending of chapter 11 up to this point in time. Uh, Wrath, as we saw in the previous uh, section, is symbolized by wine or what we can interpret as a sour wine, a.k.a. vinegar. And we can link those to a couple of passages symbolically that Jesus himself utters. One at the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, let this cup pass from me. Another time when gall mixed with vinegar was poured into a sponge and held up to him as he was being crucified, drinking the wrath of God, taking upon himself the wrath of God. That's that image. And here we see that image coming back as the wrath is generated, is collected, and then will be poured out. Now in the image, we also see something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. The sea, I actually, uh, those are flip-flop, my apologies. Uh, water is symbolic of cleansing. It's also symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Fire, as we've talked about earlier, is symbolic of judgment. So why would they stand on water? Who else do we know of in Holy Scripture that stood on water? Jesus himself. There was one other who did as well for a time. Peter. O ye of little faith. So we see a couple of things coming up here. The victorious are standing on this sea, which represents cleansing, which represents judgment, both because they possess and they declare their faith, but they, as we found out in other chapters, they're also possessed of righteousness. They don't need to be baptized again because they're already righteous before God. They don't require the cleansing. They can stand on the judgment because they come out of the judgment. Just as brass could come out of the fire without being scorched, they're standing right now by faith and by righteousness on the sea. So those who were victorious, that 144,000, I abbreviated it with 144K, I'm sorry, it'll go on, um, stand there with harps and uh, the, the direct translation that we have there says harps that are from God in other passages that can be confused as harps of God or harps in the service of God, meaning that their sole purpose of existence is to play so that those may sing and worship uh, God. Note also this, prior to their sealing, these victors were viewed by their, the people of their own nation as outcasts. They were the losers. They were the ones who were being persecuted, hunted down, and yet they turned out to be the ones that were victorious against the beast and his servants. The word here used for victorious is nikeo, which don't check your shoes, your shoes, but that was the, the foundational term behind the Greek god of victory, who also happens to be a tennis shoe producer named Nike. <laughs> which means to subdue or to conquer or overcome, to prevail. While John's pen is identifying them as the victors, I want you to notice the substance of their song when we get to it. 
There's also this term icon. Um, when uh, talking about those in the image of the beast in some of your translations. Now, one of the, the outline of biblical usage, one of its definitions there, number two, means that uh, the icon is something that gets affixed to someone on account of their power or their position, meaning that they're either in the image of the beast or that they've taken the mark of the beast. Now, uh, to kind of tag on what I was talking to you about in the last couple of sessions, I want you to notice something. We're not talking about just a tattoo here. We're talking about taking something on yourself that disfigures you, just as the beast himself, the Antichrist, was disfigured. The places that the mark is applied is on the right hand or on the forehead, supposedly above the right eye, because this is where, going back to the books of the prophets, this is where the, uh, the coming world leader, the Antichrist, the sea beast, however you want to label him, it's where he was attacked and struck almost as being dead. So you're not just taking the swastika on yourself, you're disfiguring yourself so that you can be in the image of him. The same way that as Christians, we're supposed to be called to be in the image of Christ. Do you, do you understand the significance and the dark imagery that the enemy is going for here? Um, going on with the song that will be sung, I think that this is premature, but I'll, I'll talk to you through it anyway. Um, God is declared to be the king of, in some of your translations, depending upon it, Again, this isn't anything that's going to shatter doctrine, but I want you to be made aware of it. Some of your um, translations uh, call out God when they're singing about him as the king of either the nations, the ages, or the saints. And that's because there's a bit of a two-letter disagreement in some of the, the, the manuscripts that go into our Bible translations. In the... Um, Morphogenic Greek New Testament, those are the oldest known copies that we have. The word ethnos is used, which literally translates into peoples or nations, what we might think of today, ethnic, races. Hagios, uh, that's the word that's used in Textus Receptus. That's the, the newer texts that were used for the King James Version and the Jerusalem Bible and so on. Uh, hagios is used, which literally means the holy ones or the saints. If you've ever heard of the great cathedral, the Hagia Sophia, that translates into the holy wisdom, or if you're not quite into full translation, Saint Sophia, who is more than likely who it was named after because that was Constantine's mother-in-law. Let's go on. <laughs> Bet you, didn't, you get that one for free. Uh, okay, verse 3. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, there is some argument about this, and I'll just, again, mention nothing earth-shattering, but I mention it here so that you're aware of it. There is some conjecture that the saints first sing the song of Moses, then sing the song of the Lamb, and then draw it all to bring it all together with what you're about to hear. That's one interpretation, and I'll explain why in just a second. 
But what, what is recorded that they sing is great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations or King of the saints, depending upon what translation that you have. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. So again, this we're thinking that, uh, at least in some of my commentaries, the thinking is that the, this is a concluding verse of, of two songs that they've brought together and are tying together now with this. The song of Moses that Moses himself sang uh, after their escape from Egypt comes to us from Exodus chapter 15. There's also a, a copy of it in Deuteronomy 32. The song of the Lamb is one that we've talked about uh, who is worthy to open the seals, and that comes from Revelation chapter 5. But what we can draw from this is this that we're seeing the saints are singing about the fulfillment of the Old and the New Covenants. The Old Covenant being the covenant of Moses, the New Covenant being the covenant that we celebrate every time that we observe the Lord's Supper. The covenant of everlasting life because we accepted the sacrifice of Christ. All praise, I want you to notice this too, and I mentioned this early. All praise in this song. John calls out these guys as being the victors. They're the person, they're, they're the ones who were present when Mount Zion was recaptured and where the throne of David was reestablished. And yet not one word of what they sung took any credit on themselves. All praise is given to God without reservation. None is reserved for themselves. I hope that you, you caught that in there. This is true worship. And it's something that we of today need to be uh, cognizant of too. I hate to say it, but in many churches, um, you'll go around and you'll see uh, little plaques on the walls as to who bought what for where or who, don't, who gave the donation that made something. And, and while that's nice in one way, um, there are also episodes of church history where if there was a church split or if there was violence within the church, the person that gave X, Y, or Z to the church would beat the door down, go in, and grab whatever they had given to God out of the church. Once you give something to God, it's no longer your possession. You have relinquished all title to it. It becomes the property of God. More succinctly, His bride, who is the church. When you give praise to God, when you render worship worth-ship to God, you render everything that you are to Him, reserving nothing back. Do we have that in mind when we surrender to Him? I want you to think about that when, when we contemplate um, our devotion to Him. And we, we all need to work on our devotional lives, every one of us. Do we hold nothing back when we go before God, when we ask for forgiveness, when we set our schedules day by day? Or do we hold something back, not loving Him above all else? Just something I want us to consider for the sake of our own sanctification. Going on. 
Verse 5, after this I looked in the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of testimony. That phrase is important. The tabernacle of the testimony was opened. Now, we've talked about this before. Um, the, the holy of holies on earth, the temple had a... The temple was constructed in thirds. One room called the holy place that occupied two-thirds of the building. One room that was basically cube-shaped that occupied a single third called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, both by the art woven into its tapestries and decorated on its walls, was to be an earthly symbol of the heavenly reality of the throne room of God. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant is said to be the footstool of God. The image is when God stares down from his throne and sees his footstool, the box which contains the broken remnants of the Ten Commandments. He sees the broken law. But once a year, after great ceremonial preparation in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, after the sacrifice for the sins of Israel is brought, the high priest of Israel, and again, after a great deal of preparation, only one person, one time a year can do this. He goes behind the curtain, past the cherubim, and he takes the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkles it on the Ark of the Covenant. So when God looks down from his throne, he no longer sees the broken law, he sees the blood of the sacrifice. Do you understand what that's setting up? When the temple curtain was ripped, and when the separation point between man and God was done away with, that blood stain became permanent. So when God looks at us, if you're in Christ, He no longer sees the broken law. He sees the blood of His Son. That's the image that the Old Testament had been setting up from the very beginning. Do we understand that? The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. All the scriptures point to Christ. That's why I make such a big deal about you understanding them. So anyway, out of the temple, what I was actually getting to too, the Ark of the Testimony, any time that a, a, a covenant is made between a higher Lord and a lesser Lord, or in our case, God and very much a lesser creation, meaning us, two copies are made. A copy that resides in the dwelling place of the lesser, a copy that resides in the dwelling place of the greater. Everything that we do in worship here on earth is a darkened or a paled reflection of what is actually going on in heaven. Down to the point that God himself has a record of his covenant with us. So when it says the tabernacle of testimony was opened, it means that his covenant was now ready for all to see. Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues dressed in pure 
white linen, with golden sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures, that's one of the creatures that guards the throne of God Himself, gave the seven angels seven bowls of wrath, seven bowls, golden bowls, filled with wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Now we talked about this sin being answered by wrath. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. We've actually seen this happen before, at least twice in Scripture. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The sanctuary was opened. We've talked about this. The divine copy of the covenants were sealed. The angelic soldiers with the last seven plagues were given by one of the, the great angels, if you will, bowls of wrath. Now that word bowl, uh, as rendered into English in some of your translations, you see the word vial. Uh, well, we'll get to that in just a second. The angels themselves were dressed in white linen, which is reminiscent of what the high priest of Israel wore. But they also had a golden sash around, not their... In, in this culture, when we think of a sash, we think of an ambassadorial sash. We're thinking of what, what you might consider a baldric, the thing that goes from shoulder to flank like this. When they talk about a sash, what we're talking about here instead is something more akin to what, and I'm sorry, but it's the only analogy I can think of, what we would consider a girdle. It wraps around this way and is held together by a pin. It's still like the, you see of it when any time that we take a look at the high priest of Israel, uh, he has a sash over his midriff here with the breastplate of the, representing the 12 tribes of Israel over his actual chest. But in either of it, this sash, uh, the patterns and the color represent the person who is their Lord. It's basically an emblem of a, a, not necessarily ambassadorship as far as what we're charged with, taking a message of peace and hope to somebody, but rather it's a mark identifying them as belonging to someone that there's someone over them and they're going in the name of that person. The wrath that they're coming from, I believe, is the same symbolic substance, if you will, that we were talking about left over from chapter 14. Now, in this thing about, are we talking about a bowl? Are we talking about a, about a vial? Um, I had two different sources spring up with something. According to Strong's definition, we're talking about a broad, shallow cup. That's where the word vial comes from. According to the outline of biblical usage, we're talking about a broad yet shallow bowl or a deep saucer. Um, something akin to an incense sensor. Um, something that looks about like this. I know this is a communion plate, just hang on with me. Because it's not, what we're talking about here, if it's the latter, is not um, a dish like we would think of a plate. But it is flat in one respect. It has a high lip, but it has a very shallow dip in it. If you can see this, there's the, uh, the rim, but there's only about an indentation, about maybe a quarter inch. So it's held to hold something like a liquid or a powder. Um, and if it is the latter, if it is actually an incense 
sense or in the old-fashioned sense that we're talking about here, it has a symbolic significance too. Because the symbolism that it would set up if that's the case is that God is using these last bowls of wrath or vials of wrath, however you want to think about it, as an answer to the saints' prayers. Because incense is, again, a symbol of prayer. When the 30 minutes after seal number 6 and seal number 7 took place, and the angel brought forth a bowl of incense before God, the, the, uh, the elders declared that it was the prayers of the saints, and God literally breathes in the prayers. Breathes in the prayers, breathes out the Word of God. Think about that. But anyway, so what we're basically seeing here, you can think of it as an answer to the prayers of the fallen, the prayers of the, the um, martyrs when they, uh, when they shout, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live upon the earth and avenge our blood? Next session, I want you to come with that verse in mind. Next session, I want you to come with that verse in mind. But we end with this image, that the whole of the heavenly temple is filled with the Shekinah presence of God. So thick was it that no one could enter. And we've seen this happen at least twice before. The first time it was the dedication of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And my apologies for the latter verse. Uh, the second time was at Solomon's dedication of the temple. After Solomon had prayed before the temple, the glory of God filled the place and not even the serving priests were capable of going into it. As thick and as powerful of, with his glory was it. So anyway, uh, my apologies for that second reference. I'll put it back on the screen when I have time to correct it. But anyway, so for next session, I want you to take a second read of chapter 16. And along with what I asked you to take a look at from the previous section, uh, what are the judgments that you see targeting? When these bowls of wrath are poured out upon the world, what are they targeting? I want you to pay particular attention to that because like the judgments of Egypt, every time a bowl is poured out, it has an impact. In Egypt, the, the plagues of Egypt were targeting one of the gods of the Egyptian pantheon, every single one. So I want you to think about which wraths, if you will, what, what, are, what are each vial of wrath, what are they targeting one by one? I want you to think about something too. What were you taught previously about the Battle of Armageddon? Either A, you were taught something about it, or B, your pastors and teachers conveniently left it out. Whatever you were taught or whatever you've heard about the Battle of Armageddon from, gleaned from culture, if you haven't done any studies like this before, I want you to pin down. Journal, and as always, share with your groups. As iron sharpens iron, you raise the countenance of a friend. You help each other become more and more crafted into the image of God or the image of Christ. So please make sure that you are meeting with your groups, at least with a 30-minute phone call. Hopefully now that we've 
uh, come as far as we have, we can still get together in coffee shops and restaurants and so forth and spend some actual fellowship time together. Speaking of which, if memory serves, Highlands Men's Breakfast will be this coming Saturday, as this is the third Saturday of the month. Um, if you are a guy, you are invited. So, anything else before we conclude the, sun, uh, the service? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, it is again that we thank you for giving to us um, this precious book. And Lord, we do claim the blessing that you promise in chapter 1. Lord, that whoever hears it and whoever reads it will be blessed by you. So Lord, help us to better understand both your word and our place in your word. That for those of us who are our family members, those of us who are our neighbors, those of us who are our friends, Lord, if, it, if the time is indeed nigh that we would be used by you as messengers of reconciliation so that those who would be in danger of these judgments would instead come to find your mercy. So help us to be messengers of that mercy. Help us to be the proclaimers of the gospel before it is everlastingly too late. Give us your strength Give us your wisdom as all things and help us now as we leave this place to go, uh, to go into mission and to be further equipped for the work ahead. And again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the freedom that we have to come together safely. Now please bless these efforts to bring in a bountiful harvest for your kingdom. In the matchless name of Christ we pray and all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.